So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and threw it down at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Everyone has heard the story of the time when Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Or maybe you've just heard the song. If you want to hear my retelling of the story of Jericho, I would direct you to my episode 3.11, Pretty Canaanite Woman. The story of Jericho is a great tale, but it is followed up by the story of two more battles that is just as compelling, but not as well known. Maybe because nobody wrote a song about it. Well, I don't know if I can do much about a song, but I can do my best to tell a story that I think needs to be better known. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 3.13 ay, 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 ay. Where is Joshua, anyways? Asked the elder from the tribe of Judah as he approached the tabernacle. He was asking it of the priest from the tribe of Levi who stood on the doorpost for the day. He's in the same place he's been all day, came the answer. He's lying down with his face to the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. He hasn't moved. He hasn't had anything to eat or drink. He hasn't even made a sound. Frankly, I'm starting to get worried. Do you know what's going on? You're getting worried. How do you think that we elders feel? The entire camp is in turmoil. The people are trembling in fear because they've lost confidence in all of their leaders, and especially in Joshua. Didn't you hear what happened? No, replied the priest. Nobody ever tells us anything. I think that they think we're supposed to just know it all. But being a priest doesn't work like that. Joshua just showed up here with his clothes torn and ashes on his head. He didn't say a word. Just walked right into the tabernacle, fell on his face, and hasn't moved since. What's gone wrong? You're really scaring me. Oh, just a horrific defeat that's made everyone question what we're even doing here. Well, I think you'd better tell me all about it. I'm on duty until sundown, and I don't have anything else to do. Following the incredible victory over the city of Jericho, when the walls came down and the city was taken. Everyone was riding high, the elder began. We had been so afraid when we saw the massive walls of the city, 
but then they'd fallen before us, and it seemed so clear that God was going to fight for us. It was like nothing could possibly stand in our way. The next big city that lies in our path is a place called Ai. It's a small place, at least compared to Jericho. Its walls aren't so big, and it doesn't have so many fighting men. If we'd come to Ai first, the people likely would have been terrified, but filled with the confidence that comes after a big victory, I guess Joshua got a bit cocky. He decided to send only 2,000 men to attack the city. It was foolish and impulsive, and now Joshua and the men that he sent have paid the price. They were defeated and had to retreat in dis disarray. Thirty-six fighting men are dead and many more are wounded. But the worst came when the bloody and defeated survivors wandered back into the camp. The news of the disaster spread through the camp like wildfire. The people, who had been so filled with confidence just days ago, started to panic. It seemed clear to everybody who was to blame. Joshua had failed us. Joshua was an overconfident fool. If he wasn't removed from his position at the head of Israel's armies, he was going to doom us all to destruction. And Joshua, rather than facing these accusations, fled and came here, to the sanctuary. And here he's been ever since. I am very worried. Unless he does something to address the chaos in the camp and the fear that's overwhelming the people, I'm afraid that Joshua might end up atoning for his foolishness with his own blood. The priest was plainly hesitant to enter into the tabernacle and disturb Joshua where he lay in front of the ark. But the elder's story convinced him that there really was no choice, and that the man's life might depend on him being disturbed. He went in and gingerly shook the commander's shoulders. When Joshua lifted his head, his face was smeared with tears, mucus and dirt. But rather than looking contrite, he seemed positively ecstatic. It's okay, he said with a smile. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. God has spoken to me. It was a day later when the tribes were finally assembled near the sanctuary. They were angry and unruly. But when Joshua finally faced them, the timid and self-doubting man of the day before had been completely replaced with a man who spoke with utter confidence. I know that many of you blame me for the defeat at I, he said in a loud voice. You say that I did not send enough men to defeat that stronghold. But I say to you, that if only two hundred fighting men had gone there, and Yahweh had been with them, victory would have been guaranteed. The problem is not your commander. The problem is you. 
you have disobeyed Yahweh, and so Yahweh has allowed your enemies to defeat you. This was the last thing that the people had expected to hear, and so they fell into confusion, wondering what Joshua might mean. Do you remember what I said when Yahweh took down the wall for your sakes at Jericho? Joshua continued. Shout, I commanded, for Yahweh has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to Yahweh for destruction. It was Yahweh who inspired me to say that. But did you listen? You did not. Yes, we killed men, women, and children, and even their beasts of burden. But somebody took plunder. Somebody took gold and silver. Somebody took expensive clothes and ropes dyed with crimson. And because of this plunder, Yahweh is angry at the entire nation. That is why the army was defeated at Ai. It was nothing I did. It is what you did. Until this evil is purged from among you, your God will not be with you. This speech created no small amount of consternation among the tribesmen. For there was not a single man who had broached the walls at Jericho, who had not claimed for himself some plunder. Everyone had a bundle of expensive cloth or precious metal or jewels buried underneath his tent. After all, wasn't that the point of going to war? When you risked your life, should you not expect some small reward? But of course no one was about to step forward and admit to be the one who had taken the plunder. Instead, one man who just happened to have three talents of silver buried in his tent, decided that deflection was the wise course under the circumstance. Who is the impious fool who has betrayed us? he cried out. Let the traitor be brought forward, and let justice be swift. Others, seeing the way that the wind was blowing, quickly joined in the cry, until before long the entire crowd was shouting out in unison, Stone the traitor! Stone the traitor! Joshua smiled to himself. It was working! The men of Israel had come together bent on punishing no one but Joshua for this disaster. Now they were ready for a new victory. Men of Israel, he called out, you shall have what you want. Yahweh knows who this blasphemous individual is, and Yahweh will reveal him to you. The judgment process was swiftly put into place. It consisted of this. After the sacrifices had been prepared and consumed, scraps of broken pottery were taken and inscribed with the marks of the various tribes of Israel, and then placed into a basket. The priest came and implored Yahweh to reveal to the people which of the tribes had sinned in his sight. When the chip of pottery bearing the mark of Judah was drawn from the basket, 
You could hear all of the members of the other tribes sighing in relief. The process was then repeated with the clans of Judah, and after that the families within the clan that had been chosen. The winner, if you can call it that, was the family of Zabdi. Finally, the grandsons of Zabdi were put into the basket, and the lot chose one of them, Akan, son of Carmi. Akan, as pale as snow and trembling with fear, stood before the assembly. Every man of the army, who knew very well that it could have been him standing there, released their nervous tension by yelling and screaming that Akan had betrayed them, had betrayed them all, and that he deserved to die. But Joshua stood forward and raised his hand for silence. Wait, men of Israel, wait, he cried. Let the wisdom of God be made known. And he turned to Akan, speaking to him gently like a father to a child. Son, he said, give glory to Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and confess your sin. What have you done? Akan was weeping with fear, but he managed to choke out a confession. I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and two hundred shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels. Then I coveted them, and I took them. They now lie hidden in the ground inside my tent, with the silver underneath. The people cried out with horror and shock, so extreme that you might be forgiven for thinking that perhaps they protested a little bit too much. Runners were quickly sent to Akan's tent. When they returned bearing the pilfered goods, Akan's fate was sealed. Stoning is a terrible way to die. It is meant to be. Akan and his family were bound and made to stand before the people. His children, who were far too young to understand what was happening, were nevertheless frightened by the way that the men in the crowd shouted abuse at them. They wept in terror. The family's livestock was made to stand with them. They all represented a great evil within the nation of Israel, and there was no room for any pity or any hesitation. Every man, including Akan's own father, Carmi, took up stones. In fact, Carmi stood in the very front row and shouted even louder than the others in hope that everyone else might forget that the man in front of him shared his blood. The shouting grew to a crescendo, but still no stone had been cast. It is not an easy thing for anyone to do to throw a rock at a human being, much less a child, who stands in front of you. 
you first have to convince yourself that they are not human. So the people worked themselves into a frenzy, yelling and screaming until they sounded more like a pack of wild dogs than a well-ordered militia. Finally, something broke. A first stone was cast. It was small, no bigger than a fig, but it was enough to break whatever dam was holding the people back, and it was immediately followed by a deluge of stones of various sizes. After that, it was soon over, and the people who moments before had been trembling with rage and fear were swept away by a sudden euphoria. They felt cleansed and liberated, and they were filled with confidence that Yahweh would indeed be with them. In the aftermath of the sacrifice of Akan and his family, Joshua began to fear that he had, perhaps, succeeded too well in deflecting the anger of the people. It was understood by everyone that a return to Ai was necessary. The defeat that they had suffered there could not be allowed to stand. It had to be avenged. But the people spoke as if they should just replicate the failing strategy that had gotten them into this mess in the first place. Everyone just to seemed to assumed that they only needed to send a couple of thousand fighting men once more, and victory would be assured, because their sin had been purged, and Yahweh was now sure to give them the victory. They needed to trust only in their God, and not in how many men that they sent. But Joshua had no intention to be made a fool of again. And so it was proclaimed throughout the camp, that the demonstration of Yahweh's power was not yet complete, and that, though I was a small city of little significance, it was the will of Yahweh that all the fighting men of Israel see the mighty deeds that he would perform there. So all of the people were ordered to go to I. The sun was just beginning to rise as Joshua took the small force of 2,000 men who were with him and began to advance on Ai. He deployed his forces before the front gates and waited while the men of the city lined up to face them. In the dim light of the dawn, he could feel the terror that must have infected the two thousand he had previously dispatched to attack this place. He recognized now how foolish he had truly been to send so few on such an errand. The city might be small, but its fighting force was daunting. This time Joshua knew things would be different. The difference didn't really have all that much to do with the death of Akan and his family. That had been a diversion. Regrettable, 
but necessary. It was not, however, what would be decisive in this battle. The battle was joined, and it was as brutal as Joshua had known it would be. He watched as more of his men went down underneath the swords and spears of the Ayans. More blood, more sacrifices offered up to Yahweh in search of a victory. But Joshua knew that it was no less necessary that these men die, because when he finally gave the call for his men to retreat in panic and disorder, it had to be believable. Everything depended on the men of Ai believing that they had defeated the Israelites once and for all. When Joshua finally signaled the men on the ram's horns to sound the retreat, his troops were very near to the breaking point. The terror they displayed as they turned and ran was very real. But that didn't really matter. The more terrified they were now, the more elated they would soon be. The men of Ai gave a mighty victory shout and sprang after the men of Israel, eager to slaughter them all. That didn't matter either. The more elated they were now, the more devastated they would soon be. Finally the moment came. Joshua raised his hand, and the man who had been watching for that signal sent up his signal. Joshua smiled grimly because he knew that the huge mass of men that he had sent to hide and wait to the north and west of the city would now be springing into action. Their instructions were simple. They were to take the city of Ai, which had now been emptied of all its fighting men. Surely it would only take them a manner of minutes to subdue the women, children, and old men who remained within. Then they were to set the city alight before falling on the rear of the forces who now pursued Joshua's men. Oh, it would be a great slaughter, and Joshua could feel the joy of it rising in his heart as he turned to see the first signs of smoke rising from the doomed city of I. There is one thing that has always bothered me about the story of the Battle of Ai in the book of Joshua, and that is that you do not really need God to explain anything in it. That the Israelites should have been defeated when they said an insufficient fighting force to attack a fortified city doesn't seem all that surprising, and certainly doesn't need a supernatural explanation. But of course, if Joshua did not find a supernatural explanation that Yahweh was angry with the people because of some other offense, then the fault for that whole debacle would have been credited to the commander who made a bad decision. It's not hard to see why Joshua would have wanted to deflect that blame. Really, the only thing in the whole story that seems somewhat miraculous is the whole matter of identifying Akan 
as the guilty sinner, the only one who took loot during the storming of Jericho through a seemingly random process. But even that seems a bit suspicious. Given what we know about human nature, should we really believe that he was the only one to take plunder from a defeated city? Is it not more likely, if not also more disturbing, that Akan was simply chosen by the lottery to be a sacrificial victim who would assure a victory after a humiliating defeat and perhaps deflect attention from a boneheaded decision made by the commander? That is, assuming, of course, that the Battles of Ai took place as described in the book of Joshua, which is actually unlikely, I'm afraid. As I've said before in this podcast, there really is no archaeological evidence for the conquest of Canaan as told in that book. The ruins of Ai have been identified somewhat to the, me- to the west of the ancient city of Bethel, ruins that seem to have been known to the author of the book of Joshua, but the city was destroyed a long time before the generally accepted time of the conquest. It seems possible that the story of the Battles of Ai was a story that was created and told to explain a ruin that nobody knew the origins of. But it seems to me that whoever wrote this account did know a few things about military tactics and how to take a walled city. He also seems to have known a lot about how to deflect the blame for a defeat. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please come back for a new episode at the end of next month, which will focus on one of the most underestimated characters of the New Testament, King Herod Agrippa. Please tell other people about this podcast and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Cryptic Sorrow. The music is by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under the Creative Commons, and you will find links to it in the show notes. Send your requests, comments, and questions to Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible. And I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.